So hello, everybody. Um, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Anthony Fulmer. Um, Pastor Dan asked me to teach this evening, so it is my honor and my um, greatest fear, right, to, to teach the Word of God, right? It's, it's both a blessing and, you know, I take those verses very seriously that says that teachers are judged more harshly, right? We've got something very precious that God's given us, and I never want to take it for granted. So, um, yeah, so tonight, I think because we're obviously in the Advent season, that it would be appropriate for us to take a look at the beginning of the Christmas story tonight. So, um, the Christmas story begins in Genesis. So we're going to start there, and then we're going to tie it into um, some verses in Galatians tonight. So, uh, for those of you unfamiliar, uh, Genesis, first book of the Bible, so it's right at the beginning, talks about the creation of the universe and the creation of this world. And uh, one of the things that keeps being um, emphasized over and over as God's creating day after day is that what he's creating is very good. Okay? The last day he creates man. And when he creates man, he creates them to be a son and an heir of everything that God has created. He has great fellowship and intimacy with men, or man, I guess, Adam, right? And then eventually Eve. And then what happens? The serpent comes into the garden and deceives Eve into eating of the, tr- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, fellowship with God is broken. And they knew without having to be told that that relationship that God had created them to have with him was broken because what happened when he shows up in the garden? They're gone. They're hiding. They're running away from him. And to make that even more emphatic, God then kicks them out of the garden and he places angels with flaming swords at the entrance so that they can never come back. They, put, they were put out of his presence, they were put out of the garden, and they weren't allowed back in. So the question is now, now that those that God created to be his children and his heirs, to share this intimate fellowship and relationship with him, now that they'd violated that relationship and be, had become, for all intents and purposes, children of Satan, Would God do anything to buy them back? And the first verse we're going to look at tonight says emphatically, yes, yes, he would. So verse we're going to start with tonight is Genesis 3.15. So at this point, God is cursing everybody, right? He's, he's laying out, here's your punishment for what you've done, okay? And he starts with the serpent. So Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So initially, when we read this verse, we're not really sure in the beginning whether God is speaking about many or a single person when it says seed, right? Your seed and her seed. Then God immediately clarifies in the next section here. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we know from this context that God is speaking about a single person. So a man would be born to a woman, and that man would come into conflict with the serpent. And ultimately, the result of that conflict would be Satan being destroyed, being dealt a fatal blow. Okay. And one of the things that struck me as I was studying this verse of Scripture, and I think it really plays into God's personality throughout the entirety of the Bible, that it's kind of interesting that God's in the middle of cursing them. They've just violated the one rule he had, do not eat of the tree, right? They've broken that relationship, they've broken that fellowship, and he's dealing out discipline. But in the middle of that, who he is, who his personality is, he gives them that promise of redemption. The very first curse he dishes out to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first curse also comes with the promise of redemption as well. And that is that plays out just who God is, his personality. So we know that somebody is coming, but the next logical question we have to ask when we read that is, who's this man being referred to here? All we know about him at this point is that he will come from Eve, but obviously every other human being besides Adam on the planet comes from Eve, right, ultimately. So that's not extremely helpful in trying to narrow down who this is that we're talking about. But later, God reiterates this promise. He floods the entire planet, and the population shrinks to eight people. And after, there's no one in his family, by the way, um, after the flood, um, God reiterates this promise through Noah in Genesis 9. We're going to look at verses 26 and 27. Um, But I wanted to kind of give you guys a little bit of the extra context to this verse. So floods happened. It's over. They're starting to rebuild. Noah, one of the things he does is he plants a vineyard. And for whatever reason, gets drunk, wasted to the point where he falls, he passes out, falls asleep, whatever, in his tent, completely naked. And his son, Ham, wanders in, sees that this has taken place, and basically goes to his brothers like, dude, check out dad, he's in the tent, naked, right? And instead of being... Um, or the two other brothers, Shem and Japheth, don't take kindly to this. Instead of being upset at Noah, they take a cloth, they make it, they cover him up to kind of preserve his dignity, right? 
So Noah finds out about all this when he comes to, and in verse 26 and 27, he basically pronounces blessings and curses, right? So Genesis 9, 26 and 27, and he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan his servant, and may Canaan be his servant, may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Canaan, by the way, is the son of Ham. So he's cursing the son and giving a blessing to his other two sons, Shem and Japheth. As you can see, the three sons and their descendants are each linked with a blessing or a curse here. Uh, Shem is blessed with a connection with God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Japheth is blessed in connection with territory. May God enlarge Japheth. And then lastly, Ham, through his son Canaan, is cursed with enslavement. And obviously, for those of you who are familiar with much of the Old Testament, Israel and Canaan fighting pretty much most of the time that that happens. So this is considered one of the first, not the first, but one of the first messianic prophecies. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That connection with Shem meaning the Messiah would come through Shem. And that promise seems to bear out because next we're going to take a look at Abraham, who, as it happened, was a descendant of Shem. And he's going to receive a promise from God that all nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. So continuing on in Genesis, we're looking at verse chapter 22, verse 18. Excuse me which says very simply, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This promise then moves through Abraham's second son, Isaac, and is reiterated in Genesis 26, 4, which reads, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And again, God reiterates this through Isaac's second son, Jacob. The promise continuing again, Genesis 28, 14. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And again, not to belabor the point, but through Jacob's son Judah, the promise is reiterated again in Genesis 49.10. Speaking of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So Shiloh um, in Hebrew means heavenly peace. So Shiloh here, the he and to him, the Shiloh being referred to here, is a reference again to the Messiah being promised through Judah. And then finally, again, the promise passed to Judah's royal descendant David. And this is 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seat after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, and ultimately we know that this promise was fulfilled in Christ. Okay? This is the promise that we look forward to at Christmas, right? This is what we celebrate. So, tonight we're going to be looking ultimately at Galatians 4. Um, But to set the stage for what we're going to read in Galatians 4, I'd like to get a little bit of extra context from the third chapter. So we're going to look at two verses briefly in chapter 3, just to kind of give us a little bit of extra before we go. So first, Galatians 3.16. So Galatians 3.16 reads, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So this promise that we just looked at and that we tracked throughout large portions of the Old Testament, Paul is confirming again that it's referring to Christ and that the promise that God made in Genesis, that ultimately he would be dealing a fatal blow to the serpent, to Satan. Okay. Um, as that verse also said in Genesis 3, this is not a painless victory over Satan, right? It says, you will bruise his heel. So it was not without cost what Christ did. And we see, obviously, between the way that he was brutalized, the way that ultimately death on the cross, the fact that he took the wrath that we deserved on our behalf, it was not without cost, but ultimately it was a victory, right? And so the last verse we're going to look at in chapter 3 is verse 26 of Galatians. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So this is the result of that promise being fulfilled by God. That we are now all sons of God again. What paradise was lost in Eden, we regain it through Christ. That relationship, that fellowship, that intimacy that we had with God. We lost it through Christ, we gain it. This concept of sonship... And what it means is what we're going to look at today, okay? So before we get in to Galatians 4, let's take a minute and pray. Father, we just thank you so much just for the opportunity to meet together as your people, Lord. We just thank you that um, just supernaturally uh, your spirit being with us, Lord, that we can have just wonderful fellowship with one another just that love that's shared between believers. Um, We just thank you for it. We thank you for this wonderful church, your body, your people, all working together, Lord, all just existing, getting to know you, wanting to know you better, Lord. And so as we study your word tonight, I just ask that you will uh, be with us. Lord, give us hearts ready to receive from you. Lord, we just ask that this time 
We'll know you a little better. We'll appreciate your amazing grace a little more. We'll understand just a little bit more that we didn't before. We just ask for an increase in wisdom, Lord. That your spirit will be with us as we study. And just ultimately that we um, take these truths tonight, plant them deep in our heart so that they can grow into some beautiful fruit for your glory, Lord, and for our joy. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So tonight, the main thrust of our um, scripture is going to be Galatians 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. So we're going to read it, and we're just going to chunk it verse by verse. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So, when man was originally created, he was a son and an heir. Right, And when he fell, he became a slave of sin and Satan. And this verse very clearly says that God sent his son to buy us out of the slave market and to then make us sons and daughters. Okay. So let's look at the first two verses here. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. I think this is a pretty straightforward analogy that everybody can relate to, especially small children, I'm sure. Um, Basically what Paul's laying out, very simply, is that a little child in a family, even though they may be the heir and the future owner of everything that the family owns, have no agency of their own for the first chunk of their life. Um, I know from personal experience, when my children were very young, I would always joke with my wife that they'd be dead in about 20 minutes if they didn't have adult supervision. It's like every power plug on the wall was like calling to them in some language I couldn't understand. And we would have just dozens of the little plastic plugins that sort of blocked the outlet. But if we had vacuumed and forgotten to put it back, it was like a siren song. Our kids would instantly recognize it, and you would just see them like... In fact, our oldest, didn't she put like a fork in one of the sockets at one point? Yeah, we heard a snap, we heard a scream. She never did it again. But thank <laughs> As a parent, you never want it to happen once, but... <laughs> You're especially glad when it doesn't happen twice. So, And that's really the point. Uh, they have no agency of their own for the first part of their life. Um, small children don't make their own decisions. 
They have no authority over any part of their life. They're disciplined. They're told what to do. They're reprimanded. If needed, they're threatened. And they're made to conform and they're taught to obey. That's the exact same life of a slave in those times, right? So what Paul's saying here is you have no control over your own life when you are a child. You're exactly the same as a slave in that time. So let's look at the second verse here. And I want to draw your attention to the end of that verse. Until the time appointed by the Father. Paul here is speaking of the time when the Father finally says, Okay, you're not a child anymore. Now you're a son. Which, um, in modern times, I don't think we really have something really analogous to that. Uh, adulthood just sort of happens um, or not happens, as the case may be. As a millennial, right, I know that our generation has contributed a lot to never becoming an adult. Um, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with the concept of boomerang kids. This is, this is a term that millennials contributed to the lexicon. It's basically a child where you're like, all right, see you later, but they always come right back. <laughs> so in their 20s and their 30s, they're still living in mom's basement, right? I mean, we just survived adult Happy Meals, guys. Like, there's a marketing agency that was like, hey, McDonald's, you know what you should do to millennials? You should sell them that thing you sell to, like, six-year-olds as well, and they'll buy it up like crazy, right? So modern times have really, like, we don't have any allegory to becoming an adult. There's no defined time where child, adult. But in the... Ancient times, that was much clearer. So let's look at the Jews to start with. If you were a Jew, sorry, on the first Sabbath, after a boy had passed his 12th birthday, his father took him to the synagogue where he became a son of the commandment or a bar mitzvah, just in case we all know that word, even if we don't know what it means. I didn't know what it means before this. So he became a son of the law. Okay, so the father, at his bar mitzvah, utters a benediction. Okay, blessed be thou, O God, who has taken from me the responsibility for this boy. So he's basically handing the boy over to God. And then the boy prayed a prayer, which they say, O oh my God and God of my fathers, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake and bear the responsibility of mine actions towards thee. Right? It's a very clear dividing line in the boy's life because basically overnight he becomes a man. Could you imagine, by the way, how the Jews had to raise their children that by 12 years old they were adults, like they were ready to become adults? shows you what their culture, how they valued that process. So if you were Greek, a boy in Greece um, was under his father's care from the age of seven until he was 18. The first six years the mom had, and then at age seven the father took over. When he turned 18, he became what was called ephibos, 
which can be translated cadet. Basically, the state in Greece owned you for two years after you became an adult. You became ephabos. The Athenians were divided into ten fratriari, which is just the Greek word for clans. And before a child became an ephabos, at a festival, when he was received into the clan, as a ceremonial act, his long hair was cut off and offered to the gods as a sign that he was a grown-up, an adult now. And because permed mullets are coming back, I was kind of hoping that would make a comeback as well because not a fan myself, but, you know. Um, so, so we got the Jews, very definitive moment when they became an adult. Greeks, the same. But I think what Paul seems to be referring to here is the Roman custom. So the Romans did their adulthood a little differently. In the Roman custom, there was no specific age when a child became a man. Uh, it happened whenever the father thought the boy was ready. So a Roman child became an adult at, the f- at this festival known as the Liberalia, which was held every year on the 17th of March. So if your father thought you were ready, you got to go. Otherwise, you waited until next year, and hopefully we're ready by then. At this time, the child was formally adopted by the father and acknowledged as son and heir. And he took off the toga pretexta, right? It's funny to me that you have to wear like specific clothes your entire life, but okay. And you put on what was called toga virilis to show that you are now a son, officially adopted by the father and heir of everything. And then lastly, on the day that a boy or a girl grew up, the boy offered his ball and the girl her doll to Apollo to show that they were putting away childish things. So while the timing was a little more fluid than the Greeks and the Jews, if you were a Roman, there was still, when it happened, that very clear dividing line between childhood and adulthood. So the emphasis Paul is making here is on the fact that all of this depended on the timing of the father. In verse 2, okay? So let's move on to verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. What does he mean by that? So here when Paul is describing the elements of the world, he uses the word stoicheon, okay? What this means, I mean, it's a word that's morphed In meaning over time, it meant originally a line of things, like a file of soldiers. But eventually it just became essentially vernacular for the ABCs, the very most elementary knowledge of the universe. So what he means here is that we, when we were children, we were under bondage to the most fundamental workings of the universe. And what is one of the most fundamental Laws of the universe, cause and effect. Everything is cause and effect. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? And you can see this everywhere. Look at Jewish law, right? Essentially, Jewish law came down to cause and effect. If you obey, 
you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be punished. Cause, effect. Okay? Many other cultures and religions follow this premise as well. Karma is a great example of cause and effect. Religious teachings saying, hey, basically, the better you do, the better your next life and your next life until you finally reach enlightenment. You do bad, you come back as a woman. That's just Hinduism, guys. I don't make it up. (laughs) Just saying. It's actually true. So, sports superstitions in in the modern day. I don't know if you guys have... It seems to be most prevalent to baseball fans, but I think it kind of leaks in everywhere. These sports superstitions, like, you know, when I was watching my favorite team play and I had my jersey on, they won. And so, therefore... The next week I didn't wash it, and they won again. And so now I must both wash it, or never wash it, and wear it every game in order to ensure that they'll stay in the winner's column, right? So ultimately all these things come out to what cause and effect. If I do this, this will happen. If I don't do this, this won't happen. At our most basic, whatever the outlet We operate on a level that we believe when we do good, we deserve good. And when we do bad, we deserve bad. Or more accurately, in modern times, when when I do good, I deserve good. And when somebody else does bad, they deserve bad. Okay. And this is referred to by Paul in verse 3 as bondage. We were in bondage to this way of existence. And ultimately, there's nothing wrong necessarily with this principle, cause and effect. But we know that thanks to Christ, that's not how we view our relationship with God, is it? What is grace? We're operating under grace now, not cause and effect. What is grace? God gives me what I don't deserve. Because if he gave me what I deserve, none of us would be very happy with what we deserve, right? So we operate under grace now, that God gives us that which we don't deserve. He kindly gives us Uh, love and affection and peace when we deserve only punishment. So moving on to verse 4. We'll look at the first part of it first. And we're going to turn back a little bit to verse 2. So, but when the fullness of time had come. So in verse 3, we're talking about being under bondage to the elements of this world. And in verse 4, we see the opposite of that. We see that being broken. But when the fullness of time had come. The elemental principles we lived under were only temporary because they were going to be broken by Christ. And so let's think about this concept of the fullness of time. If someone were to look at the perfect timing of God with regards to this verse... Why did God choose that particular time that he did to send Christ? Why did the Father set that date? Ultimately, there are many reasons we don't know and we won't know, right? Our brains are probably not capable of processing all of the nuance where God is like, this is now. But what we do know is it was exactly the right time, correct? But there were some things that we can point to about this particular time in history 
that helps us understand at least some of it, right, in a mirror darkly. So first off, the Babylonian captivity had largely purged the Jews from idolatry. You know, you read through most of the Old Testament, and it's like this king, you know, followed God. People were blessed. This king put up the Asherah poles again and started sacrificing to Baal, you know, and the people followed. But with the Babylonian captivity and onward, they had purged idolatry out of their, um, out of Israel for the most part. And at least ostensibly, they were looking towards the true God. Now, obviously, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's not exactly happy with how these people have been trying to worship God during this time, especially the Pharisees. But at least idolatry had been largely purged, and they were focused on the true God. And so there was at least better ground for the teaching of the Messiah to spread. Synagogues were also populated throughout the Roman Empire, so there would be places for people to go and teach when Messiah came. So that would happen a lot faster. And if we look at Paul's missionary journeys, we see him taking advantage of that fact quite a bit. He'd show up to a town, preach in the synagogue, and then he'd go preach to the Gentiles, right? Also, by historical standards, the time of Christ was very peaceful. Um, Christ came during a time in the Roman Empire referred to as Pax Romana. It was basically the golden age of the Roman Empire. They were at the height of their prosperity. They were at the height of their power. And most of the parts of the Roman Empire itself were relatively peaceful, and most of the bordering uh, nations around Rome, weren't, they weren't really fighting with one another very much. So because peace basically reigned throughout the Roman Empire, trade and ideas could flow a lot more easily than during times of war. And most of the major cultures at that time had followed suit. Additionally, thanks to the conquests of Alexander the Great, much of the known world spoke Greek. So when the New Testament is written in Greek, almost any culture in the known world could read it and understand it which made the transfer of ideas much easier than at any time in history since the Tower of Babel. And lastly, because Rome had constructed an amazing highway system that allowed them to travel to the vast reaches of their empire very quickly, um, commerce and people could travel at a much faster rate than they ever could before, much more safely than they ever could before. And so all this aided in the spread of the gospel at the time of Christ. But despite all these reasons, and I'm sure the hundreds more that we don't know, or that I'm not bringing up, the most important reason is that in God's mind, this was the correct time. This is the time that he had in mind for us. So looking at the latter half of verse 4 into verse 5, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So God sent forth his son. Paul uses this phrase on purpose, which I I I guess it doesn't really surprise anybody. Paul's a very particular man, very smart. 
But he says, God sent forth his son, son meaning the same essence as God. This is to focus on Christ's divinity, right? This also shows that Christ was already the son from eternity past. God sent his son. There was a heresy in the early church called adoptionism that basically said Christ earned his sonship at the baptism or at his crucifixion or at the resurrection. It's one of those points. That's when he became son. So obviously here Paul saying God sent forth his son, meaning Christ was already son from eternity past, and that he was already divine. Second, he says Christ was born of a woman. In general terms, what Paul's getting at is Christ was born a true man. Right? We just went through 1 John, and the Gnostics of the time, what were they saying? Christ was not flesh. Flesh is evil. Spirit is good. Christ could not be flesh because then Christ would be evil. Therefore, he just appeared to be a man, but he was not. He was just a spirit. Paul here is refuting this before the heresy even really took hold because this book was written well before Gnosticism really took hold. So he was born a true man. But also Paul always refers to Christ being born of a woman, not man, which is obviously a nod to Christ's virgin birth. Okay. Next, born under the law. So this is important because Christ was subject to the same standards as all of us were. He, just because he was God didn't mean that he was under any different rules than we were, right? He was under the same standards as everyone else. The difference being, unlike everyone else, he perfectly met the standard, right? If he had to die for his own sins, he couldn't have died for ours. So this is a pretty important one. And then lastly, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This restoration of lost sonship, lost fellowship, lost communion with God. God promised this to Adam and Eve thousands of years before it happened. From promise to fulfillment was thousands of years. And sometimes, I mean, it's been thousands of years since he's promised to come back as well, right? But God's timing is perfect, and it's always important to keep that in mind. But in verses 4 and 5, we see really how gracious God's kindness and love is lavished on us. Because I think it would have been enough if he had just bought us back from slavery, right? Which he did. He redeemed us. But he goes much further than that. He makes us sons. He makes us heirs. And while we might mourn the loss of what Adam and Eve had, that fellowship, that closeness to God, this adoption and heirship is not only a restoration of what they had, but ultimately it's greater than what they had. We replaced the intimacy of God in Adam with the intimacy of God in Jesus. How do we know that? Look in verse 6 here. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his sons into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. So, in verse 5, by Christ, you have been made a son in status. Right? 
God considers you now son in Christ. In verse 6, by the Holy Spirit, you have the confirmation of that reality, and you also have the experience of being a son. The Spirit is the proof that we have been made sons of God, essentially. Um, Here's some words from John Calvin talking about this crying out. I consider that this participle is used to express great boldness. Uncertainty does not let us speak calmly, but keeps our mouth half shut so that the half-broken words can hardly escape from a stammering tongue. Crying, on the contrary, is a sign of certainty and unwavering confidence. Thus, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent us his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. So this idea of crying out as well. Abba, by the way, in case anybody's not familiar, is Aramaic. It's basically like, it's not exactly like calling somebody daddy, but essentially Abba is the term you would use for your dad in the family circle, not in public, in private, amongst the family. It's basically like an affectionate, loving name. And so this, in verse 6, talking about the experience of being sons, like who's going to come to God with that sort of intimacy, that affection? It's not made possible except by the Spirit of God, and that's only possible through Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So lastly, here in verse 6, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of his Son, because the idea of our sonship is based on Jesus's sonship. That's what we're inheriting. And then lastly, we'll look at verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So here's the culmination of a beautiful progression of truths, right? Sons are never slaves, and slaves are never sons in their father's house, right? Jesus illustrated this with the parable of the prodigal son, okay? Rich man, one of his sons demands his inheritance right now. Father gives it to him. He goes off, blows it, flat broke, living in a pigsty, feeling envious of the pigs when they're being fed, like the pig slop that they're being fed. That's like he hit rock bottom. He realized, man, if that looks good to me, there's some problems. And so he says to himself, you know what? Not even my father's slaves live like this. They always have clothes. They always have food to eat. They always have a place to sleep. So I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to beg him to just take me back as a slave. And what happens? He goes. He meets the father on the road. And the father refused to make him a slave and would only receive him as a son. Paul, here in this last verse, is reminding the Galatians of their graduation from slavery to the law to their adoption and heirship through Christ. Romans 8.16 reiterates this message when it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul here is reminding them of what they've gained through Christ. For those of you that maybe aren't as familiar with Galatians, essentially the church was putting itself back under the law. 
Judaizers had infiltrated the church and tried to tell the Greek believers, the Gentile believers, that, hey, you're not really allowed to be a part of the family except through Moses. So first, you know, we're glad you're here, but first you've got to go through Moses, and then you get to come through Christ. And Paul is trying to tell them, no, 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 no. Don't put yourself back into bondage to the elementary principles of the world. Do not put yourself back into bondage to the law. Christ has fulfilled that, and now we're under grace. And so here in verse 7, Paul's trying to remind them of what they've gained through Christ. He's pleading and reasoning with them not to return to the enslavement to the law. And this is actually a reminder to us as well, in a way, because we deal with the same message all the time in our lives. The world naturally focuses on these elementary principles, this this bondage of the law of legalism. And we have the message of Christ during Christmas. And what does the world have? What's their message during Christmas? Let me read you some song lyrics. Beloved Christmas song. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. And then the creepiest part. He sees you when you're sleeping. And he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good, for goodness sake. Everything that is not of God ultimately becomes this. This works, right? Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Which, I mean, did anybody ever get bad? Did anybody ever... Did, did any, did anybody ever get coal from Santa growing up? I don't know if any of you guys did Santa. Wow, we actually have some hands up. Well, Tim, I understand that completely. But <laughs> I was uh, not a good child, but I'll tell you what. I always got presents from Santa under the tree. So. But ultimately, now this is not meant to be a screed against Santa in particular. I know Christians are mixed on it. I'm, obviously, my wife and I have had our struggles as we're raising children, right, with this cultural touchstone. But... It's the same message that the world is always trying to pull us away with. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. And instead, we have something much greater in Christ. So, let me close in prayer, and then I'm done, though. So. Father, we are just so grateful to you for your Savior. Lord, we thank you that though we have earned nothing but your wrath, we've earned nothing but punishment from you, Lord, that you extend your hand in love and forgiveness to us, Lord. We just thank you so much for Christ, who we celebrate this time of year. You sent him, Lord. We thank you that we live in such a time where we have seen the amazing work that you did through Christ on this earth, that we're not still waiting for Messiah, Lord, though we wait ever so eagerly for him to come back. Lord, we just thank you so much for this message of grace and love that, Lord, you bought us from the slave markets. You cleaned us off.
You made us sons and you made us heirs, Lord. We just thank you for that amazing truth, that amazing act of kindness on your behalf, Lord. And so we just give you all the praise. We just ask you to please help us to just understand a fraction of your love and your grace towards us. And we just pray for the remainder of our time together this evening, Lord. We just ask you to be with us as we go our separate ways, Lord. Help us to return home safely. And we just thank you. We praise you. And Lord, we love you so much. And ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen.